The Sermon on the Mount is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus introduces it that way in the paragraph before chapter 5. And this is a different kind of kingdom. It's not just an outside kingdom. It's an inside and outside. It involves saying and doing. We've discovered heralding and healing, proclaiming and practicing inside and out, believing and behaving. And Jesus says in 520 of this sermon that that's what's necessary. It's required if you're going to enter the kingdom. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And so Jesus wants to spell it out and make it clear for all of us what that looks like when it comes to practicing daily acts of piety. And last week, we talked about those three examples that he gives for us in verses 1 through 21 here in chapter 6. He says, you're giving to the poor and you're praying and you're fasting. So those three, giving, praying, and fasting ought to be done, not to be seen of men. He says, not so that you can get the applause of others, but so that you can be seen of God. And I want to note again, just so we're all on the same page, that these contrasts that Jesus says, there are two ways of giving, two ways of praying, two ways of fasting, are not contrasts between uh, two different types of Christians. Rather, he is going to say that these contrasts are between believers and unbelievers. And the words he uses are found In chapter 6, verses 2, 5, and 16, he calls them hypocrites. Don't do this. Don't give like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't fast like the hypocrites. And I know that in our modern vernacular, that hypocrite usually brings up or conjures up the idea of someone who says something and does something completely opposite. And truly, that is a type of hypocrite. But in Jesus' mind, at least in this text, He's talking about people who do the right things, but don't have a heart on the inside to go with it. That they have a religious veneer, that they have an externalism. There is a mask, a facade, a level of superficiality that only goes skin deep, as it were. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of righteousness that describes those who are truly my disciples. And in our text, In verse 7, he changes it, not the kind of contrast, but the word he uses. And he says in verse 7, but when you pray, he doesn't say hypocrite this time, but perhaps maybe even a stronger term, he says, you must not be, verse 7, like or, or empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Those who are non Jewish people, we would say today pagan people, people who are lost, people who don't know God. He says, There is a pagan prayer and there is a Christian prayer. Now, don't get me wrong, though. Please follow. Pagan prayers are not by irreligious people. They are by religious people because they pray. And according to Jesus' words, they pray a lot. In fact, it might embarrass some Christians how much non-Christians pray in comparison. I used to do Bible studies for 13 years at the DOT, and almost every day when I went down there on Thursdays, I'd go in there, and if you walk up the fire extinguisher stairway, you'd find Muslim people praying in those stairways. And they would pray five times a day, and they were faithful at it, and it didn't matter what their boss was saying, what anyone else was doing, they were going to pray. So we're not talking about a contrast between religious and irreligious people. We're talking about a contrast in Jesus' mind between religious people who are lost, and Christians. 
So he says, let me tell you about the pagan prayer. He says, here's how they think they will be heard. Now, please follow, listen to this. I want you to ask yourself, why do you think when you pray, God listens to you? What is the basis for your prayer? Because these two approaches are categorically different. I mean, completely different than one another. He says, here's what pagan people think has to happen when they pray. They heap up, Jesus says, verse 7, empty phrases. They think if they repeat the same thing over and over and over again, even if there's no meaning behind it, there's no heart in it, there's no relationship by it. He says they think if they just say the right words, the magical words, in fact, the word empty phrases heaping up is the word babble. It means they just keep going on and on about it. It reminds me of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when Elijah was there and he called down fire, but they tried to get their God, Baal, to bring down fire. You know how they did it? Well, they just kept reciting the same prayers for hours over and over again. They were jumping up and down and dancing and cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things. That's, why they, that's how they think that they would be heard. See, I call this the business approach. It's based on... God, I do my stuff, and you do your stuff. See, if like the prophets of Baal, I perform enough, I do all the right things you want me to do, and on the outside, I'm conforming and doing all the things that are expected of the religious person to do, then God, it's your job to come through and answer my prayers. See, it's a conditional thing. And there are a lot of people, even perhaps some here, and certainly in other religions as well, They know how to recite the Our Father, but they don't know the Our Father. And there's a big difference in those two. And Jesus says, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like Gentile people who think that their basis of being heard with God is some sort of performance that they have to do. And if they do all the right things and enough of the right things, that somehow they merit his favor. And he says in verse 8, do not be like them. Here's why. Because that's not how you are going to be heard if you know God. See, he's your father. See that in the text? Your father knows what you need before you ask him, he says. Based on the fact that you have a relationship with him. And it's completely different. See, pagans have a business relationship with God. But Christians have a family relationship with God. That's why at the beginning of this text in verses 8 and 9... Father is used twice. At the other end of it, in verses 14 and 15, your father is used again. And it brackets the text. Why? Because what he wants you to understand is that prayer is a DNA marker of what it means to be in the family of God. But not just any prayer. Not just any prayer marks Christians. The way that they pray. True Christians, there is an approach that they have to God. And the basis for what they are heard is not based on the business approach which says, because I do something. But on the family approach which says, because I am something. That's why God hears me, because I am his child. Flip over one page and listen to Jesus talk more about this in chapter 7 and verse 7. Again, talking about prayer, but listen to this, the family relational approach. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, underline this, if his son, see it? If his son, because this is his dad he's talking to. This is his Abba he's talking to. If your son asks for bread, isn't that what Jesus is going to say in a few moments? Give us this day, Father, our daily what? Bread. So if, you're, if you have a father and you have a need and you're hungry and you ask him for bread, here's what Jesus says. Will he give him a stone? In other words, do I have to coerce him? Do I have to manipulate him? Do I kind of push him into a corner so he wants to act for me? No, this is my dad. This is my father, he says. So if then, he says, or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Watch. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, circle it, underline it, to your children. If you have a relationship with your children and you're not even perfect and you're not sinless, in fact, sometimes you're evil, but yet you know what it means to have a father and have a parent-child relationship and how much you love. See, how much more, listen to that, how much more will your father who is in heaven give you the things that you need or those things that you ask of him? So let me ask you pointedly, are you a renter or do you have a relationship? See, there's a big difference between those two approaches. When I graduated college, I was going to seminary and I went to my first semester of seminary and at Christmas time we had a big long time off probably like six weeks off so I was getting married over my break in January 10th 32 years ago you should probably applaud for my wife (laughs) but 32 years ago and we were at January 10th and it was in Minnesota and it was snowing and I had strep throat that has nothing to do with why, so I just want to tell you that. <laughs> but I, we got an apartment, and I remember getting the apartment, and I met the landlord, and, and we, <clears throat> we had a contract, and you signed it, and there was an arrangement, and I was a renter, and here's how it went. Um, I paid the rent and all the money every month on time at a certain time, and in exchange for that, I got to live in this apartment, and if anything went wrong, the air conditioning, the heating, you know, the toilet didn't, whatever, then his job was to come back and fix all of that stuff. See, that's our arrangement. It was mechanical. It was an exchange of goods and services. That's how it works, because I was a renter, right? I, I, had a, I signed the contract. So, Some people today, pagan people, will say this. God, come into my life and be my landlord. See, and they say, you do your part and I'll do my part. And so based on that kind of relationship with God as a landlord, this is how they pray. So they begin to pray and say, hey, God, I've been paying the rent, i.e., I come to church. You know, I'm not explicitly moral and moral. You know, I pay my taxes. I haven't committed any crimes. I've not been thrown into jail. I try to be as nice to people as I can. And see, God, I've been paying the rent. I- I'm doing my part. And so I begin to ask God, and I talk to him over and over again. See, he got, got it. here's my part. I've been doing it. Now you do your part and, and answer my prayers and give me the things that I want to have. Or, on the flip side of it, for some people, they recognize this. And you know what? <laughs> 
I haven't been paying the rent. And honestly, I haven't been to church in a while. And that's why we say Christmas and Easter only, but there are some people like that. And they begin to say, oh, you know what? Some things wrong in my life and uh, probably why I need to get back to church and get some things straight in my life and so forth. And so, so when I pray, I don't really expect a lot because, you know, I haven't been doing my part, so I'm not really thinking God feels too obligated that he has to do his part. Let me tell you, either way, listen, you express this. You're not a child. You're a renter. See, you're a renter. And see, it comes out and expresses itself most of the time, listen, when you don't get your prayers answered. So let me ask you, how do you respond when you pray and you ask God for something and he doesn't do it? He either doesn't do it the way you want, he doesn't do it when you want, he doesn't do it in the time that you want, and time passes and nothing changes, things don't get better, it seems like God has turned a deaf ear to you, and you begin to wonder what is happening. And see, you think, God, I've done my part, why aren't you doing yours? See, it's a performance. It's a mechanical thing between you and God. You're a renter, and he's your landlord. But Christians, on the other hand, and that's why he says in verse 8, see, your father already knows you have needs. You are not praying to him to inform him. He already knows. He already knows. And so he says at the end of verse 8, so he says, pray then like this. Don't pray as if you have to coerce God, manage him, push him a little bit, urge him to try to care about you or answer your prayers based on some bartering system of how you've performed. That's not how God works if you know him. So he says, here's how you pray. Two words, ready? Our Father. See, that's the family basis. So the Christian says, God, don't come into my life as a landlord. Come in my life as my father. Can I tell you, those two words make all the difference in the world. It's not a relationship, especially when it comes to prayer, of performance, but rather of commitment. Prayers that don't have the relationship part, if they're not answered, become cold. They become impersonal. They become rote and routine and repeated and meaningless because there is not a relationship that's behind it all. And so Jesus says, here's how you ought to pray. And note this, he did not start his prayer for all of us to be modeled after with our king. He did not say, pray like this, our king, although he is our king. He did not pray, start this way, our creator. He could have, but he did not, even though it's true. God is our creator. He didn't even say, which was more relational, he says, pray like this, our friend. Now, the Bible says we are God's friend if we know him through Jesus. But he didn't start that way. Instead, here's how he told us to pray. Abba, our father. And the reason is, is because that's what marks True kingdom followers. They are in the family of God. Listen, and it comes out in the way that they pray. Those two words, our Father, control everything in the entire prayer. And may I say it so much to say this, and everything in your entire life, if you truly know him. True Christians, not the pagans, 
not the hypocrite ones. No, the true followers of Jesus are marked by a fact of which they never get over. They never stop being amazed by that two, those two words, our Father. Here's what it means. You were not his child at one point, and he adopted you into his family. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right or authority to become children of God. You weren't his child at one point. You were in the family of the devil. And by his mercy and lavish love and grace that he has poured out on you in Christ Jesus, he took you to be one of his own. It is so amazing that 1 John 3.1 puts it this way. See the English and New King James, behold, behold, what kind of love. And the word what kind of is the same word used of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, 39, when he whispers to someone next to him about Jesus, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that's touching him and putting all the stuff with her hair and wiping with her tears. See, he would never, because he would know what kind of woman she is. In other words, it is a very specific, detailed description of what kind something is. And here's what John says. Listen, behold, see this. You know what kind of love God has given you? Do you realize that this love that God has brought you into his family is not like any other family, any other love? It is unique in its entirety. He says, The Father has given us this love that we should be called the children of God. And then he says this, and so we are. In other words, he never got past it. And so should we never get past it. And we have songs in our hymn books that help us. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me to him who death pursued, amazing, listen to this, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I mean, never, ever getting past it. See, that's what Christians say. Don't come into my life as a landlord. Come into my life as my father. And when they pray, that relationship shows so what would the words of a relationship prayer, not a renter prayer, a relationship prayer actually be like? Well, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer is divided up into two segments quickly. The first part is petitions to and about God, and the second part about your own life and your needs. So he says the first thing, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why is it that the vertical must precede precede the horizontal? Here's why, ready? Because for the Christian, there is nothing we need more, hear me, than to know God. What's first in a true follower of Jesus is not getting on my knees like the pagans do. In fact, read the end of chapter 16. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. That context in the verse preceding it is, here's what the Gentiles do. All they want is God to give them stuff. He says, but you, you are not like that. You seek the kingdom first. All this other stuff that you think is the most important thing in your life, 
So you might pray and say, here's what pagans do. Give me a better marriage. God, give me my children who did it. God, help them to get that scholarship. God, I need that car. And if you could fix this bill. And God, if you could help me. And then all they're interested in is things that God would give them. But the Christian, first of all, is not interested first and foremost about God's gifts. What they want most and they recognize they need most is God. God. So they pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. Oh, may you be the greatest thing in my life. May you be set apart. May you be the unique one in every aspect of my life. Everything about my life. See, first of all, I want to tell you this. You be the center of my marriage. You be the center of my finances. You be the center of my time. You be the center of my kids' priorities and my life and what matters most. See, you be it. You be worshipped above all else. You know why? Here's why. Your kingdom come. Oh, this isn't about me, God. I'm not out for my agenda. I'm not out for my king. I'm not on the throne. I'm not taking your crown. I'm not saying, please move aside. No, God says, you know what matters most? My, my kingdom matters most, and the Christians know it. That's why they pray that. And when you realize God is king and he's on the throne, here's the response. Ready? The next petition, your will be done. Didn't Jesus pray that in Gethsemane? Father, ready? Father, not my will, but yours be done. And to pray that prayer at an awful cost of what it would cost him to give his life for us is amazing. But can I tell you this? That's what Christians do. That's what Christian prayer is like. It is the praising of God, is the surrendering of our will to what is best for his kingdom. It always has caveats. God, here's what I would like you to do, but you know better. Whatever is best for your kingdom and your name and your glory, God, that's what I'm all about. See, before we ask God for one single thing in this prayer, what we need to know more than anything else is him. And we need to put his kingdom first. And we need to submit to his will. Hear me, otherwise, everything you ask for God will disappoint you. You know why? Because you will use them as a substitute for him. See, if you start with, give me this, my daily bread. Don't lead me into temptation. Take care of all the problems and difficulties in my life. See, if you're more interested in your kingdom and your well-being and your safety and your progress and your happiness and your success, see, you'll elevate that and you won't have time to get on your knees and talk to God for who he is. There won't be, bless you, Father, thank you for who you, there won't be time for any of that. Because you'll take the things in the context that ought to flow out of your love for God and your relationship with him, and you'll make them God in his place. The old Irish hymn that's 1,300 years old, Be Thou My Vision, in one verse says this, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. See, that's what this prayer is about, treasuring God 
supremely. First, seek ye first, first in your heart. Listen, and when you get that down, and when that's true in your life and true in your prayers, then and then only are you ready to make petitions about your life. And there are three that are listed here. I call them the 3D prayer about dependence, daily dependence, debts, and deliverance. So when you have God as your father and you set apart his name as holy and you're submitted to his will and more than anything else, you want his kingdom rule to be part of everything that you do. Now you ask him things. And now those requests have a context. So with all of that in mind, you begin to say, God, now here's what I need you to do for your glory and kingdom. Give me this day my daily bread. Now watch, he didn't say give me this day our monthly bread. It's not our weekly bread, but like the Israelites in the wilderness who got manna from heaven every day and could not store it up, God had to give it to them fresh and new every day like his mercies are, Lamentations 3. God says, see, when it's my kingdom, not yours, you won't worry about your kingdom. And the most important thing won't be your retirement and the house you have somewhere else and all the the bank accounts. See, that won't be it. See, I'm just concerned about today, he says. Not because it's wrong to save, not wrong because it's wrong to have retirement, but he says, here's the main concern. Ready? Today. I want everything I have in this little 24-hour life I have to be all for God's glory, he says. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I trust you. I depend on you. And let me tell you, that's why in this chapter, there's a big section on worry. And don't be anxious about this and your clothes. And it says, and where are you going to sleep? And where are you going to live? And what are you going to have to eat? And all the things. You know why? Because I've got a father, he says. I've got a father. And he knows all those things. So I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be frantic. And wonder how it's all going to turn out. Because I have a father who every single day has got it under control. And then he says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's amazing that that little phrase also concludes this text, forgiveness. He says in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. See the first if clause? followed by a second if clause. But if you do not do that, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours, he says. And I wondered how in the world, why is the Lord's prayer there? He actually just said something about forgiveness. So why the two phrases? Why the two verses? Why the stark, harsh words that if I don't forgive people horizontally, I get no vertical forgiveness? Here's why. Jesus says vertical requests are tied to horizontal relationships and you cannot separate them. You cannot say our father and not also say our family. And by the way, that's why all the pronouns in this text, you will not find me, my, or I in the Lord's Prayer, but what you will find our father Our daily bread, our debts, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what it's about. See, it's a total pronoun shift. Why? Because when you're a Christian, 
Not a pagan who's only concerned about their isolated individualistic needs apart from everyone else and above everybody else. No, Christians are different than that. We are the plural pronouns. Our me has been swallowed up with a we. And we are concerned not just about ourselves, but ourselves included in the context of everybody else who's in this family who has the same father, he says. So you cannot say our father and not also say our family because what he wants you to know is they go together. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 and Colossians 3 and verse 13 that Paul himself catches this and says, listen, you need to forgive others as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So what you have to do to have exceeding righteousness and demonstrate you're a Christian is not only pray God Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You don't just say it with words in a prayer. You do it in real life in practice. Verses 14 and 15. See, that's what the righteousness is. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I'm supposed to pray this. I'm supposed to say this to people who offend me and really hurt me. But inside, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to do it for a long time. And I'm not going to offer any forgiveness. And I'm going to get bitter and angry and upset by it. And I'm going to hold on. And by the way, I have a right to. You know what that is? Business relationship. See, if you don't do this to others, see, if you don't perform for me, I'm not going to perform for you. I'm holding out on your forgiveness. See, God says, that's not what my children do. See, they pray, Father, I know vertically what you have done and the forgiveness that you have given to me is amazing. I don't deserve it. And even when I wasn't in your family, you loved me and died for me. And you adopted me. And I've never got over the fact of what it took For me to be your child. And so when others offend me, even grievously so, how can I not be quick and fully to forgive? Because that's what God has done for me. And so he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let me close. Matthew 18, don't turn there. Peter one day thought he was really being spiritual. And told Jesus, how often should we forgive our brothers? Up to seven times, Master? He thought he was praying pretty good. Jesus says, depending on your version, 77 times is what you should do. Or 70 times, whatever the version you have says, it's a lot. And what he's trying to say is, always forgive people. Always. And then he tells a story about a guy when his master came around to settle the accounts, it says, and he owed his master millions upon millions of dollars in American currency would be today, way more than he could ever pay off in multiple lifetimes. And he said, I'm going to tell you, I'm selling you and your wife and your kids into slavery and your work as a slave, all your family and your family's families and on down the road until you pay it off. I don't care how many generations it takes. And he said, oh, master, have mercy on me. Show me pity and I'll pay you everything. And the guy goes, I know you'll never pay me anything, but I'm going to forgive you anyways because you asked me. And he forgave him all of his debt. Well, not very long after that, strangely enough, the guy goes out and finds someone who owes him, him some money. It was, it was 300 denarii, or 100 denarii, I think it was, which, by the way, would be hundreds of dollars compared to tens of millions of dollars in comparison. But he goes out and the Bible literally says the guy grabs him by the throat and he's about to choke him. He says, listen, you're going to pay me everything or I'm putting you in prison. And he does. He goes to put this guy in prison and the guy, and you, you, you're shaking your head. You're going like, what? I mean, millions of dollars and you had a few hundred and you, 
And, and the whole story is put together because both incidents use the same words, and you think deja vu, the guy's going to get it. Oh, yeah, I got millions of dollars just forgiven me. I can certainly do a hundreds for other people. But he doesn't. And the Bible says that the master is told by all the other servants about what he did, and he comes back and says, listen, you wicked servant. See, it's not a contrast between two kinds of Christians. This is a contrast between someone who's really a servant of God and who is a wicked servant. He says, you should have forgiven everybody, that guy, his debt, just like, he says, as I showed mercy to you, as I did it. But you didn't. So he says, you know what? I deliver you literally to the torturers until you can pay it off. And then Jesus closes, listen to this. And so will your heavenly father, see the relationship? Your heavenly father will do to every one of you. He will turn you over to the tortures. Every one of you, he says. If you do not forgive, listen to the relationship. Your brother, see, heavenly father, brother. If you don't forgive your brother, but no, not just the words, not just the actions. Listen to what he says. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, he says. None of this pious externalism. None of this I forgive you because I have to. But I, des- I forgive you because I have been forgiven. And the forgiveness and love of Jesus that he's lavished on me has changed me. And there's no debt, even millions, could compare to the debt I owe him. And I ask him every day to forgive mine. And if I forgive, he forgives me, how can I not forgive you quickly, easily, from my heart? I moved to do it, he says. Because the vertical and the horizontal, see, they go together. It's true with forgiveness, and it's true in prayer, and it's true in our lives. Jesus says there's a pagan way to pray, and there's a Christian way to pray. And those two ways are not just how you go about it. Those two ways are indicators of who you really are are renter or relationship which is true of you let's pray we're going to sing that old Irish hymn as we close be thou my vision And the first step in the right direction, it may be that you need to write a card, a phone call, a visit to get forgiveness, offer forgiveness, be right with someone. It may be that. It may be that you need to say to God today, oh, Father, I want you as my father, not my landlord. I want to be not a renter, a relationship. And maybe you're here and you don't have that relationship with him. And your life is built on externalism. Because you've never had Jesus change your heart. See, you can have a personal relationship with him by faith today if you'd call on him to be your savior and recognize he died for you and rose again so that your sins could be forgiven. If you've never come to that realization and have that assurance, see, we're going to sing in a few moments. You could come forward and someone can take the scriptures, the Bible, and show you how you can have forgiveness and life eternal in his name. But maybe you're a kingdom follower today. You say, Pastor Walker, it's just been a renter. 
I've been a renter. And this is just a business transaction exchange between me and God most of the time. That's what marks my prayers. That's what marks my relationships. People have to perform for me, and I have to perform for God, and it never ends, and it's never enough. And I'm telling you, it'll consume you, frustrate you. It'll wreck everything. But you can exchange that today for a relationship, a renewed relationship with him. Father, thank you that we can say those two words, our Father. Certainly, we are not worthy or deserving of them. To be in your family, to be adopted there when we had no right or deserving, we weren't deserving of it. See what kind of love, oh, amazing love. May we never get over it. And may we be the family. Lord, we sin and we're not always the family that we ought to be, myself included. We, we fall short. But Father, it's what we want to be. We want to be more like your son because he is your, your son, Jesus, and you're our father. Help us to take by grace the steps in that direction today that you might be glorified and that your name might be hallowed and that your kingdom might come even more through our lives and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to that end, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.